Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey, Minister and Chaplain with JHE Ministries, and today we continue our Bible study in the Gospel of Luke. Last time we finished chapter 19, so today we're going to start to unpack chapter 20. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to that chapter and let's get into it. Now we're going to start talking about Jesus' uh, Jesus's authority being questioned. And with this controversy, Luke initiates a series of dialogues. They include the familiar form in which a question is answered by another question designed to catch the interrogators in their own inconsistency. The controversies are typical examples of the kind of challenges thrown at Jesus by various opponents that he had. And these dialogues sharpen the issues so that the reader sees the hostility and the theological errors of the leaders of the people. So turn with me to verse 1. I would like to go ahead and read the first eight verses. And verse 1 begins, Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him, and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is it who gave you this authority? But he answered to them, I also will ask you one thing, and answer me, the baptism of John. Was it from heaven, or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now taking a look at verses 1 and 2. What a picture we have. The master teacher tirelessly proclaiming the good news in the shadow of the temple and the leaders of Israel being insolent are challenging Jesus's right to teach. Now to them, Jesus was a rude carpenter of Nazareth. He had formal education. He had no academic degrees, no accreditation by an ecclesiastical body. Well, what were his credentials? Who gave him this authority to teach and preach to others and to cleanse the temple? They wanted to know. Now, Jesus' authority is of paramount importance, and his work as teacher and prophet requires validation. It is therefore appropriate that the controversy section begins with this question about his authority as teacher and preacher. One day is indefinite, as in chapter 19, verse 47, Luke also emphasizes the people's receptiveness to his teaching. Now, as we continue on, I want to take a look at verses 3 and 8 here, or 3 through 8. Jesus answered them by asking them a question. If they had answered correctly, they would have answered their own question. Was the baptism of John approved by God, or was it merely of human authority? They were caught. 
If they acknowledge that John preached with divine authority, then why didn't they obey his message by repenting and receiving the Messiah that John proclaimed? But if these leaders had said John was just another professional preacher, oh, they would have stirred up the anger of the masses who still acknowledged John to be a prophet of God. So they said, we do not know where John got, a, got his authority. And so Jesus says, well, in that case, I won't tell you by whose authority I teach. If they couldn't tell that much about John, why did they question the authority of the one who was greater than John? And this passage shows that the great essential in teaching God's word is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. One who has that endowment can triumph over those whose power is wrapped up in degrees and all these human titles and honors. Where did you get your diploma? Who ordained you? The old questions, possibly begotten of jealousy, are still being asked. The successful gospel preacher who has not trodden the theological halls of some distinguished university or elsewhere is challenged on the points of his fitness and the validity of his ordination. The implication of Jesus' question is clear. Jesus refuses to give more light to those who refuse to accept the light they have and make a decision concerning it. They choose to stay on a worldly level of thinking. And the word heaven is a surrogate for God that we see in verses 3 through 5. So now let's move forward. We're going to take a look at verses 9 to 19, the parable of the tenants and the wicked vine dressers. Now, the refusal of the leaders to accept Jesus' Jesus's authority, back in verses 1 through 8, leads to this parable that not only clearly affirms that authority, but also alludes to Jesus' death and his subsequent vindication. The parable draws its imagery from the Song of the Vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And this story tends more toward allegory than Jesus' parables usually do. The vineyard may be compared to Israel. The owner represents God, the son, Jesus. The tenants, the religious leaders charged with cultivating the religious life of Israel as they acknowledged in the upcoming verse 19, and the servants correspond to the prophets. So let's turn back to our scriptures and take a look at verse 9 through 19. Then he, who is Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went to a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? 
I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. And he looked at them and said, When then is this that is written, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Now let's stop there for a moment and let's back up to verses 9 through 12. The insistent yearning of the heart of God over the nation of Israel is recounted once again in this parable of the vineyard. God is the certain man who leased the vineyard, which is Israel, to the vine dressers, the leaders of the nation. He sent servants to the vine dressers to get some of the fruit for himself. And these servants were the prophets of God, like Isaiah and John the Baptist, who sought to call Israel to repentance and to faith. But Israel's rulers invariably persecuted the prophets. The circumstances in this story were not such as to provoke a violent reaction. Only part of the fruit was requested, and in the early years of a vineyard's existence, the tenants would own little, if anything. And finally, here in verse 13, we see that God sent his beloved son with the express thought that they would respect him. Although God knew, of course, that Christ would be rejected. But notice that Christ distinguishes himself from all the others. They were servants. He is the son. And the owner ponders what steps he should take. The expression, whom I love, must be understood with respect to its meaning in the ancient Near Eastern family relationships. As a synonym for only and only, it defines the unique status of the person as a beloved only child. And the idea expressed here is the same as it is used by Abraham and Isaac by God at Jesus' baptism and by God at the transfiguration. And with verse 14... These verses contain the heart of the story. True to their past history, the vine dressers determined to get rid of the heir. They wanted exclusive rights as leaders and of teachers of the people that the inheritance would be theirs and theirs alone. They would not surrender their religious position to Jesus. If they killed him, their power in Israel would be unchallenged, or so they thought. So they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And as we take a look at verses 15 through 17, we see at this point Jesus asked 
his Jewish hearers what the owner of the vineyard would do to such wicked vine dressers. Now in the book of Matthew, the chief priests and elders condemned themselves by answering that he would kill him. Matthew 21, verse 41. And here the Lord himself supplied the answer. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now this meant that the Christ rejecting Jews would be destroyed and that God would take others into the place of privilege. The others may refer to the Gentiles or to regenerated Israel of the last days. Now the Jews recoiled at such a suggestion. Certainly not, they said. The Lord confirmed the prediction by quoting Psalm chapter 118, verse 22. The Jewish builders had rejected Christ, the stone. They had no place in their plans for him. But God was determined that he would have the place of preeminence by making him the chief cornerstone, a stone which is indispensable and in a place of the greatest honor. The vivid description of the son's murder and the father's vengeance evoked from the people who heard the parable a strong, may this never be. They sensed the horror of the story and its drastic application, even though they may have understood its details imperfectly. Not only will God vindicate his son, who is the stone, but those who oppose him will meet destruction. This point is tactically acknowledged in the reaction of the leaders, and this carries forward the hostile scheming against Jesus that's referred to back in chapter 19, verse 47. And lastly, here at verse 18, the two comings of Christ are indicated in verse 18. His first advent is depicted as a stone on the ground. Men stumbled at his humiliation and loneliness, and they were broken to pieces for rejecting him. In the second part of the verse, the stone is seen falling from heaven and grinding unbelievers to powder. Now, let's continue just a little further here, and let's take a look at the Pharisees, and the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? So turn with me back to verse 20 here. Let's take a look at verses 20 and 26, and I'll read beginning with verse 20. So they watched him, who is Jesus, and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he and Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. 
But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Now Luke's readers would certainly know about the various forms of the heavy Roman taxation. And these totaled over one-third of a person's income and included a poll tax, customs, and various indirect taxes. And the chief priests and the scribes realized that Jesus had been speaking against them, so they became more intent to lay their hands on him. They sent spies to try and trick Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested and even tried by the Roman governor. Now, these spies, they first praised Jesus as one who would be faithful to God at any cost and fearless of man, hoping that he would speak against Caesar. So in verse 21 and 22, we see then that they asked him if it was right for a Jew to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, Jesus said no, then they were going to accuse him of treason and turn him over to the Romans for trial. Now, if Jesus had said yes, he would alienate the Herodians and the great mass of the Jews for that matter. But we see in verse 23 and 24, Jesus realized the plot that was against him. So Jesus asked for a denarius. Perhaps he did not own one himself, and he probably didn't. The fact that they possessed and used these coins showed their bondage to Gentile power. Whose image and inscription does it have, Jesus asked. And they, of course, admitted it was Caesar's. The portrait on the coin represented submission to Rome. And Jesus' statement may seem ordinary to us, as we have become so used to the same, but it was an unexpected and telling response to the question. Jesus' questioners were sure that Jesus' answer would alienate either the government officials or the pious people and the zealots who opposed foreign domination. But we see as we move into verse 25 and 26, Jesus silenced them with the command, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They were seemingly so concerned about Caesar's interest, but they were not nearly so concerned about God's interest. The money belongs to Caesar and you belong to God. Let the world have its coins, but let God save his creatures. It is so easy to quibble over minor matters while neglecting the principal things in life. And so easy to discharge our debts to our fellow men while robbing God of his rightful dues. Jesus appealed neither to those who preached revolution nor to the political compromisers. He stated a principle, not an accommodation or a compromise. To give 
what the government requires is part of one's religious duty. In spite of Jesus' balanced position, he was later accused at his trial of promoting an insurrection against Rome. And with that, we are running out of time for today. But next time, let's pick it up right here with the Sadducees, and we'll talk about the resurrection. So until next time, God bless you, and keep living Christian strong.